Many years ago, there was an unbeliever and a believer on a college campus. And this believer was going around and evangelizing, and he came to this unbeliever, and he said, Are you saved? And this unbeliever said, Saved from what? And the believer seemed startled by the question and kind of stuttered and stammered and didn't quite know what to say, and he, he stumbled through explaining salvation. You know, are you going to heaven? Do you know Jesus? But this unbeliever said at that time when he asked, are you saved? All he can think of is saved from what? And he didn't feel like this believer gave a very good answer. And in fact, at that moment, he wanted to be saved from strangers coming up and asking him personal questions. Well, that person was later saved, that unbeliever. His name is R.C. Sproul, but he, he wrote a book about that encounter where he's, he was meditating on, and he spent a lot of his ministry meditating on, this is the title of the book, Saved from What? How would you answer that question if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? How would many of Jews in New Testament times answered that question. Well, we know from the scriptures that many of them were looking for a salvation from the things of this world, from from the Romans, from the oppression, from the the government that they had in that place. They, They wanted to be saved from that, and there were many religious people who didn't think they needed to be saved. They thought it was those other people who need to be saved, but We're religious. We grew up in religious homes. It's other people who need to be saved. But today, there's different versions of of the gospel. There's the prosperity gospel and the way it's sometimes portrayed. You might think that the message is you need to be saved from being unhealthy and unwealthy. Or saved from not having your best life now. Or or saved from whatever. The the psychological gospel seems to say we need to be saved from a negative self-image. We need to be delivered from having low self-esteem. We need to be saved from feeling bad or not feeling fulfilled. Or some of the popular presentations just emphasize a wonderful plan for your life or that God wants you to be happy and sometimes it's portrayed as just say this prayer and you're in. But what I want to do this morning is look at how Paul presents the gospel, how Paul in, in the book of Romans explains what it means to be saved, and what we need to be saved from. So turn to Romans 1. Romans 1 says, I am eager to preach the gospel. But what is the gospel? What are we saved from? And you might be thinking, well, I would answer that question. We need to be saved from sin. But I want you to see how Paul answers that question is, is actually different and deeper than that. Because what Paul's going to do in this book is go beyond what we do to our biggest problem and what we actually need to be saved from. The most important reality we need to be saved from is God. We need to be saved from God, from His wrath. Look at Romans 1.18. This is the problem. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The way Paul begins here is with the wrath of God. As he's presenting the gospel, in fact, verse 16, right before this, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel of salvation for everyone who believes, but what is this salvation from? He starts in verse 18 with the wrath of God. Paul was not ashamed to talk about the bad news of God's wrath as he's going to present the good news of the gospel to be saved from God and his wrath. The way Paul presents it is different than the way a lot of people will present it. But look at chapter 2, verse 5. I just want you to see this through Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, here's the problem. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then look at verse 8. He says it a different way, but the same idea. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is, this is the problem. In fact, this is the biggest problem. Not just sin, that is our, our problem, but the reason that's such a problem is that God judges sin with wrath. And unrepentant, self-seeking sinners are in the hands of an angry God. And there is fury that we need to be saved from. And if you're here today or if you're listening to this message, if you are not saved, you need to be saved from the wrath of God and His day of wrath. If you are not obeying His truth, it's the language of the text, if you are not penitent, you're actually storing up wrath for judgment day if if you listen to this message today and you are still stubborn and unrepentant in your heart there's actually wrath that is being stored up look at chapter 5 verse 8 because this is bad news god is bad news for the unrepentant but there's good news and the good news is but god but god romans 5 verse 8 but god shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. After spending several chapters laying out our our guilt and the wrath of God, he says, but God shows his love for us. This is what makes it amazing. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for that wrath that we deserve and suffered it. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. Look at this. Verse 9, we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We need to be saved from the wrath of God by Jesus. The only way to be saved from God is to be saved by God. The only way to be saved from God the Father's wrath is through God the Son's work on the cross. The only way to be saved from God is by God, from God the Father's wrath, through God the Son's work for our sin. God shows 
his wrath and he shows his love at the cross. Both of them at the cross. God is not only love, he also hates sin. And by nature, Scripture describes us as his enemies. So he's our problem, but he's also our only hope. Verse 10, Romans 5, if while we were enemies, so this is while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That means by trusting in his death for us. Much more, he says, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's Christ's life. See, we're saved from God's wrath by the death of Christ, by the risen life of Christ, by the perfect life of Christ. If we confess that Jesus is Lord and we believe, trust in our heart that God raised him from the dead, he died for our sins, and then God raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9 says, that's how we're saved. We're saved from wrath by confessing that Jesus is Lord. And we're trusting that God raised him from the dead. He died for our sin and he rose for our life. Chapter 2 calls it repentance. Here it's called reconciliation, where enemies are made friends. When the Father's wrath on Jesus has been completely satisfied, we say, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, that's what I was, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Go to chapter 9. And look at chapter 9, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured which with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? So this is the flip side of wrath, what we deserve. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. And he has prepared these vessels of mercy beforehand for glory. So God desires to show his righteous wrath. God also desires to make known the riches of his glory for those that he gives mercy to. And he has prepared them for glory. So we are saved from God. We are saved by God. And we are saved for God, for God's glory. So the end of Romans 11 says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If God has saved us from his wrath, we should be giving him glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we need to look. This is important in the gospel. We need to look at God's wrath. We're going to look at it in Romans 1. But I wanted you to see where the context is going and how the bad news sets up the good news of the gospel. You can think of God's wrath like the black velvet backdrop that you would place a diamond on. You place the diamond on that black backdrop and as the light shines upon it. I don't know if you've ever been in a jewelry store and seen that. There's something about that backdrop that makes it look more beautiful. And as we, as we look at God's attributes in this series here, as the light of Scripture shines upon them, when we see the, the darkness of what we deserve for our sins, it is the light of all of God's glorious attributes are displayed there. We're going to see them in greater measure when we see this backdrop. And so for our study here today, our outline is going to be pretty simple to follow along. We're going to look at God's wrath, man's sin, 
And then gospel hope for change. God's wrath, man's sin, and then gospel hope for change. God's wrath is a major message of the New Testament. This is, this is not just the Old Testament, or sometimes people think of the, the God of the Old Testament. Listen, every New Testament book except for one mentions God's wrath. And the book in all of the Bible that talks about God's wrath the most is a New Testament book. It's the last one. It's where we read our scripture from earlier, Revelation 15 and, and 16. And maybe as you're even hearing those words, you're thinking, I don't, I don't hear those words a, a lot or meditate on those words, but this is an important part of God's word, his wrath. And this is part of our series on God's Attributes, looking at all the things that Scripture says he is. Last week, Pastor Corey gave a great message on the jealousy of God. Two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 1, verse 20, which is the only place in the Bible that uses that word attributes. And so that's where we started this study of attributes. And it talks there in Romans 1, 20 about his eternal power and divine nature. And really, as I looked at this passage this week, we, we need to do another week in Romans 1, looking at the attribute of righteousness in verse 17. Because really, righteousness in verse 17 is what his wrath flows out of. In, in fact, uh, his wrath is really an expression of his proper attribute of wrath in verse 17. And, and I defined two weeks ago an attribute as a quality or a characteristic, and there's some theologians who would define wrath and jealousy as characteristics of God, but not attributes technically, if you define an attribute as his eternal essence before creation and before the fall. So there's two different categories of how we describe God, how he has always been in eternity, and then how God relates to his Creatures, And you'll, you'll hear sometimes attributes that God doesn't share with us at all versus attributes that he does share with his creatures. And so we'll talk more about that distinction in the future. But here's one. God is holy, holy, holy. That's God's very essence. Wrath is an expression of that, but that's the bigger category, his holiness or his righteousness. Many would argue that's actually the attribute that is an application to his creatures in this world of sin. That's what wrath is. So you can think of his, his, his wrath as an attitude towards sin rather than an attribute before sin existed. And so here's another essential statement about God God is love. That's what 1 John 4 says. There's always been love within the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit eternally loved each other. Before there was any world, before there was any wickedness, God is love. There could never be a time where God was not expressing love and for him still to be God, even just within the Trinity. But the Bible doesn't use that exact same expression for his wrath. It never says God is wrath in the same way. The world fell into sin. God revealed wrath. But in eternity past, when it's just the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's no wrath going on there. So theologians would say it's not essential to his eternal nature like love is. It's not maybe Romans 1 verse 20, the, the language of his eternal and divine nature. This is an aspect of God's holy righteousness that is revealed 
at sin. His unchanging righteousness and character is revealed in to this world, the changes of this world. So we'll study more next week in verse 17. But really, holy righteousness in verse 17 is the category that wrath is an application of. So we'll need a part two to complete that picture. But I think Joel Beakey's Reform Systematic Theology says it best. He says, wrath is an attitude of God's unchanging holiness. Strictly speaking, it's not an attribute of his nature. It's his holy justice. That's the category against sin. And he says, theologians need to walk a tightrope here. Maintaining a balance of truth when we describe the wrath of God. Don't think of God's wrath as an unstable passion of rage. Don't think of an abusive tyrant. When we speak of anger and wrath, sometimes we think of that. Here's what Beeky says. True theology roots God's wrath in his love by recognizing that genuine love must hate evil. Wrath is an aspect, he says, of his jealousy in this sense, not an eruption of unstable passion, but it actually springs from his zealous love for his son. Maybe a simpler way to think about that is think of a father when he sees a child being horribly treated. That father doesn't just feel something about that. That father will do something to to stop that that horrible thing that is being done. Or think of a judge who is sentencing a criminal. Or think of law enforcement. Think of deadly force that is used by those who protect and serve. And that's a very helpful analogy because Romans 13 is actually going to use this same word wrath to speak of law enforcement, those who bear the sword, who are agents of God's wrath on evildoers to restrain and to stop evil. And as you think about it in that sense, it's actually amazing that God doesn't show his wrath more and pour out his wrath to put an end to the evil. Sometimes we wonder why does all this evil happen? it's, It's actually amazing when you understand how patient, how gracious, how much God puts up with every day. And the fact that we're still breathing, the fact that people who rebel against God all around this world are, are still alive is, an, is a reflection of his mercy. But it's not that his wrath isn't real. But we need to think about his wrath on two levels. There's his future wrath. There's end times wrath. The Bible talks about revelation in, in different places. But there's also eternal wrath. Eternal punishment in hell. But what Romans 1 is going to talk about is a different aspect of wrath, and that's the present wrath of God. There is a wrath that is revealed before the end and before the end of someone's life. In fact, the Romans 1.18, we read Romans 2.5, the day of wrath. You're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That's the end times and eternal wrath. But Romans 1.18, look at it. It's about present tense. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed. This is present tense now on all that is going on in this world. And so we're going to focus on this present wrath because that's what the text focuses on in chapter 1. We're going to talk more about his holiness and and righteousness and his justice in future messages, which includes eternal justice. But look at Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by unrighteousness 
suppress the truth. So this is present tense. They're continually putting down, holding down, trying to, to do away with God's truth. This is what's happening in the world right now. This very day, this very hour, people are suppressing, putting down what, what God has revealed in, in their conscience and even in creation. They're, they're trying to put that down, present tense, and his wrath right now is also being continually revealed in this world. And, and this inclination to suppress the truth specifically about his wrath is something that can affect even us as Christians. Maybe this is, isn't something we like to think about or meditate on. In fact, a, a few years ago, there was a, a church denomination that was updating their hymnal, adding some new hymns, and, and one of the hymns they added in there was the, the hymn by the Gettys. I think it's the, the power of the cross and, and they, they changed the lyric in it. It goes like this. On that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Any of you recognize what the, the actual original lyric is? On the cross as Jesus died, what? The wrath of God was satisfied. Now, that change is actually true. The love of God was magnified on the cross. But we need to understand, and the writers of that song didn't let them use their song in that way to their credit, the Gettys, the, 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 the reality and what's so amazing and what's so powerful about the cross is that the wrath of God was actually satisfied on the cross, on Jesus. God's wrath, the, the payment, the penalty, and the power of it, Jesus on the cross for all those who believe in him, that's what the power of the cross is about. It was satisfied. So even sometimes Christians want to suppress this truth, but you can think of this, when I think of suppressing, holding down, the idea there is they can't, the world cannot hold down this truth. Think of a boy maybe who has snuck a dog into his room, and he's not supposed to have that dog, and certainly not in his room, and his father hears what's coming on, and he goes into the room, but the boy hears dad coming up the stairs, so he hides the, the dog in his toy box, and he puts it down there, and then he sits on it. And the dad comes, and he's talking to his son. What are you doing, Junior? Oh, just sitting here hanging out. Why are you sitting on the toy box? And here's this dog tail wagging, roof, roof, and he's trying to deny, he's trying to suppress, hold down, but the dog keeps pushing up. The dog's making noise. There's evidence all around. It's clear there is a dog in there. That's what it's like with us and God trying to, we're trying to act like and suppress that truth, but it's, it's ridiculous. But as we think about that, think about do we suppress the truth? Do, do we want to hold down, at least this truth in particular? Are we ashamed to speak the gospel and to speak about the gospel the way Paul does in Romans 1, right after he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Steve Lawson writes that if we hold back the truth of God's wrath, we're actually reducing his love to a syrupy, sentimental mush And we're turning him into a user-friendly God who pats us on the head instead of delivers us from condemnation. Francis Schaeffer said this, There is no real preaching of the Christian gospel except in light of the fact that man is under the wrath of God. 
This is how the gospel, the good news, is presented. This is what Paul was eager to preach to pagan Rome, and this is what our pagan world needs as well. And, and Jesus preached more on hell than he did on heaven. Jesus preached more about the wrath to come than, than the love of God. But even as he speaks of God's love for the world in John 3.16, John 3.36 says, For those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides. So both of those, God's love is extended to the world, but his wrath is also abiding on the individual who does not obey the Son. Both of those truths from Jesus and from Scripture are clear. And so looking at Romans 1, last time we looked at verses 18 through 23, and especially 20 through 23, how suppressing the truth about God leads to idolatry. And idolatry is not just statues. It can be gods like jobs and money and sex and power. Those are some of the common American idols. But the idolatry in verses 24 through 28 then manifests and, and progresses into immorality and depravity at the end of the chapter. And so we're going to see that today, but we're also going to see the hope of the gospel that can change us. The hope for a world like ours that looks a lot like this passage is the gospel. And next week we'll look at verses 29 through 32 as we consider the righteousness of God. But I want, to, I want you to listen. Listen for this as you read. How relevant, how timely this passage is for our world. Think about what's going on in America. Do you ever wonder why or is, why are things going the way they are? Many of you who are senior saints here have seen a, a radically and drastically different world than, than you grew up with, and you wonder what is going on? How is, what is happening? Romans 1 is going to tell us. And the Bible is more up-to-date than tomorrow's news. This is how God's wrath is revealed on a society that suppresses his truth, that continually refuses to honor him as God, refuses to give thanks to him, refuses to give up thanksgiving to God. There comes a time where his wrath gives them up. Verse 24, Therefore, this goes back to his wrath in verse 18 and, and what's been happening. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That due penalty could describe just the, the consequences of those choices that can manifest in this life, or even the the bondage that can come with certain types of sin as you give themselves over. Here's the statement in verse 28 that brings it all together. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And we don't have time to look at verses 29 through 31. We'll look at those next week. But as you read those, that also describes what's going on in our world. The NASB has God gave them over to a depraved mind. So that takes us from point number one, God's wrath, to point number two, man's sin. And remember, this all flows out of verse 18. This is how God's wrath is revealed on those who who suppress the truth, but also substitute God for the things of this world and their affections and in their attention. They give themselves over to sin. And there comes a point where God gives sinners over and gives a society over to their sin. This isn't just a singular sinner here. This is a society. Notice the plural language, them, they, throughout the passage. God in wrath is giving up or turning over to sin. These people, this society, and again, this isn't future wrath. This is present tense. Some have called this the wrath of abandonment, the wrath of giving over to those who are stubborn and continually rejecting and giving them over to giving themselves over to sin, God gives them over. And this is not a, a prophecy of Northern California. But it is a picture of a nation or a people under wrath. It's about when, when people keep living out verses 18 through 23, this is the pattern that's going to come. And this has happened throughout history since Paul wrote this, and, and this has been happening in your lifetimes. And so I would argue, listen, it's not that, as we see what's going on, thinking, when is God going to judge America? Or it's not that God will judge America in the sense of this passage. God is judging right now. There's a very real sense in which right now, his wrath is being revealed in the way that this text describes. It's not that he is going to judge or is going to bring wrath. He or will, it's that he is now. And so verses 24 through 27 are not just a biblical story of ancient Rome and what was going on around them. It's also a biography of the modern world and our very own nation as God's wrath is revealed. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Notice it doesn't say that God gave them Sin, but he gave them over to sin. It was already in their hearts, the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You could say this is his sowing and reaping principle. As they continue to sow, they, they reap. Verse 25, because they exchange the truth of God for a lie. What are some of those lies? Like it's okay to have lust in my heart. It's okay to have impure thoughts or horrible thoughts towards someone else or in the sense of bringing ourselves pleasure. If it, if it feels good, it's got to be okay. God wants me to be happy, right? Or it's, it's okay as long as you love each other, as long as two people love each other and they're adults, you know, they got to throw that in, but it's, it's okay. Or you can do what you want with your own body. No one can tell you otherwise. 
And if you get pregnant, you can do what you want with what's in your body. See, is, is God's morality and what God says about marriage and, and man and, and what is good is that truth is suppressed. His wrath is, is revealed and, and he's giving up people. I, I would argue you could look at our history verse by verse, decade by decade. And see, this has been happening. It started in verse 24, we might say, with the sexual revolution. Some of you are old enough to remember watching TV shows in black and white, like I Love Lucy. And the word pregnant was not allowed to be said on I Love Lucy back in the day. They had to take it out of the script because it was going to be too controversial to use the word pregnant. It was off limits. Ozzy and Harriet had separate beds, right? You're wondering, how did they ever have, get pregnant and have kids? Well, that's the mystery of the 1950s, right? That's, that's not how it is today, is it? The 1960s and 70s, the sexual revolution was given over to lust, impurity, adultery, all manner of immorality outside of marriage and pornography, God's truth about intimacy, being between a man and a woman, was exchanged for the lie of immorality, and the, and the lie also that if children are conceived through that, that, that's just a tissue inside of you. And so, you can think back to those days, but now it's, it's in living color, and it becomes more graphic as the Years go by in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. This is the second step in the progression to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and this spreads and this proliferates. As God is giving over and we can move to the LGBT revolution. And it's interesting, even in that order, L, G, lesbian, and gay, in that order, that's actually the order of this text, beginning with the women first and then the men. And you can look through, the, of course, this, has been, this was a problem back in the first century, but in the eight, 1980s and 90s, we see, we all know how that movement grew and how media and internet fan the flames that now rage and that now consume any opposition or even anyone who would question any of the tenets and assumptions of of that whole mindset and movement. There's no shame except shaming Christians who might speak in terms like Romans 1 today. And here's another translation of verse 26. God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned in lust for each other. And this is where we've got to recognize there are dynamics at work that are more than just an individual that there's, there's things going on. Is verse 20 started with God's divine nature, how creation shows that, and there comes to the point where that's exchanged for what's contrary to nature and the way God designed our bodies and our body parts and our hearts 
for marital intimacy between one man and one woman. But in verse 20, they didn't honor God. So he gave them over to dishonorable desires. Same-sex attraction, passion, burning lust, or different words that could be translated there for, for someone of the same gender is part of God's giving over. So there's deeds, but there's also desires in the text that depart from how we're made. And it's interesting that ladies are first in this list. Some of the commentators point out normally throughout human history, women have been the last to give themselves over to certain types of sin. They've been, women have kind of been historically, when there's decency in society, kind of a restraint, but there comes this point. And even in ancient writings, women involved in this sin was far less common, but as God abandons in wrath, the ladies are leading the parade. And we've seen that even in our world. Some of you remember in 1997 when Ellen came out of the closet on a TV show and the ratings for that show, the approval ratings went way up. Or the next year in 1998 when Bill Clinton uh, was involved in a sex scandal, his approval ratings went up 10%. That's a big jump for a president. His approval ratings went up in the midst of that. And so anything outside of God's design for marriage is included in this passage. But the 20th century ended like this chapter ended, verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval. Did you hear that word? Approval. They give approval to those who practice them. Bill Clinton's approval rating goes up, maybe in part because there's many people who do not disapprove of his lifestyle. And now we have distinguishment between those who are LGBT affirming or LGBTQA in some cases means allies. And, and there, it's not only affirmation, it's, there must be celebration. In fact, if you're not willing to use your, your gifts or profession to be involved in the celebration of, of what goes against what you believe, or if you say anything contrary, there's now the cancellation of those who do not fully and heartily approve. Or even those who just say that they believe marriage is between man and a woman. See this, what's going on in verses 28 through 31, and I think we need to remember this is also includes those kinds of sins, envy, malice, slander, how we speak of others, people hateful, heartless, ruthless. I think what we've seen in our society and even in political discourse and even in some pastors, sadly, has been just a degeneration of what it used to be when we look at the riots and the anarchy of the last year and a half. This is textbook Romans 1. This is the end of the chapter. And we'll look at that more next week. But this is America, verse by verse, and decade by decade. But the problem isn't one particular sin. We need to not single out one particular sin here. Any departure from God's truth. We're no better than anyone else because we don't indulge in certain sins. Any departure from God's truth, any suppression of God's truth, that's where this starts. That, that's, that's where the train starts. 
whether it's idolatry or ingratitude, just focusing on and serving things other than God or just not being thankful. That's where this starts, and that's, that's where all of us are. Heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, they follow, but approval is the caboose of this train. And this train is going faster, and the brakes are off this train. And if you don't give full approval, you are off the train, or maybe even out of a job in some cases. There's going to be more and more in the future difficult choices that ministries and individuals have to face as this grows more and more, as God gives over more and more. Just a little historical perspective. Ten years ago, So this time of the year in 2012, Barack Obama said, and he had said repeatedly, he believed that marriage was only to be between a man and a woman, and that was sacred. If you say that today, if if you say today, 10 years later, what one of the most liberal members of Congress or senators had ever said, if you say that today, you're canceled for life. That's just 10 years ago. His view later evolved, famously, during the year of 2012. But truth does not evolve. And what we see here is that as we suppress the truth, as we do not honor God, and as that becomes more and more widespread, God's wrath is going to be more and more revealed, and there's a sense in which he is, re- he is lifting, restraining grace. There is such thing as common grace, even on unbelievers, even on, on societies that, that we had enjoyed for a long time. It's being lifted away where God is saying, okay, have it your way. It's a scary thing, C.S. Lewis wrote once, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, when God says to us, have your own will, your will be done. When God says that to people, that's a scary place to be. One of our members here many years ago said, shared in his testimony one of the greatest proofs to him that the Bible is true is Romans chapter 1 and what he had seen in his lifetime. The, the vivid and exact detail and way that Romans 1 described what he'd seen in his world around him was one of the proofs to him that the Bible is true. But as we hear all this, as we think about the implications of this, we might wonder, well, are we powerless to change? I mean, this is a, a, a big problem. This is a big nation. Are, are we powerless to have any positive change? Or, or maybe you're someone struggling in, in sin. It may not even be the sins that we've heard about here, but you wonder, is, is there power to, to change from sin? If this is the way the world is going, do I have power within me to change from sin? And I want to draw your attention back to verse 16 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And that includes religious people as well as the pagans. And that includes things like heart Desires that are wrong in verse 24. It includes serving anything other than God in verse 25, which is a problem. All of us are guilty in this passage of not honoring God, not giving thanks as he deserves. And so we've seen God's wrath, we've seen man's sin, but we need to see gospel hope for change. Because there's good news, that's what the gospel means. 
good news. The bad news is that we all have sinned, Romans 3 says. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. It's not that other people deserve that. We deserve that, but there is grace greater than all sin. There is grace that can even pardon and cleanse within. There's grace that can save us, and there's also grace that can change us. We planned this series months ago, but this is more timely than I could ever plan because this very month in North America, state and national governments like never before are suppressing the truth of God that these things we've heard about here are sins deserving God's wrath. And they're suppressing the truth that these are sins that God can change people from. They've exchanged the truth for a lie, a lie that these are not sins and also that these are things that cannot be changed. Got an email this week from a biblical counseling center in Indiana that's being threatened with fines of $1,000 a day for counseling based on this text for people who are coming to them who want to turn from homosexuality to the hope of gospel change. That's here in the States, and in our state there's much heat on Christian colleges who believe Romans 1. And in Canada this month, some of you have heard about this conversion Therapy for homosexuals is now a crime. Conversion, how many of you have heard about that? Okay, this is, this is going on. It just became a law this month. And, and therapy does not convert. Okay, we're, this isn't about therapy. But that new law says, part of it says that it is a myth that homosexuals can convert. And that new law may affect parents or pastors or personal counsel, even though it uses the language of therapy, conversion. Uh, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not clearly limited just to therapeutic models. And so last Sunday, many Canadian churches read this statement in their church services. I want to read it here. We recognize that the greatest danger facing the Canadian church, this is what they say, is not that we might face criminal prosecution, it's that we might compromise in our teaching of the Word of God or fall silent in our proclamation of the gospel. So along with church leaders of like conviction across Canada, we stand before you today to pledge that we are committed to obeying God above all others. With the Lord's help, we will continue to proclaim the whole counsel of God without fear or favor. And that includes God's life-giving design for human beings made in his image, male and female, with sexual intimacy reserved for the covenantal union of a man and a woman. We will continue to issue the call to repent of all kinds of sin and to believe the gospel, knowing that we all have sinned and that salvation through Jesus is the one true hope for the world. And so... All across Canada, brothers are reading this. We will continue to love and serve all people in our community without distinction. In Jesus' name, we press on in the work of ministry. We will trust our Heavenly Father to guard us and to keep us and to work out his greater purposes for our good and his glory. There's many churches in America as well joining our brethren up north and preaching on these things. And I stand with them and I, I want you to join praying for our governments and pleading with the Lord to have mercy on our land and also to not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation means deliverance from sin. The gospel is God's power 
to change us. 1 Corinthians 6 mentions idolaters and adulterers, the immoral and the homosexual, and he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you can be changed, you can be purified. By the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, he says to that church, that's what some of you were, but that's not what you are. That's not your identity. Those unholy deeds or desires can be made holy. That's what it means to be sanctified. God has power to wash and to cleanse and to change. And, and, and some of those temptations may not go away, even same-sex attractions, but there's grace to resist them. We understand salvation doesn't magically make old lusts disappear, but it does give a new heart and a new power to fight whatever sins we struggled with before we were Christians. The book of Titus says, Once we too became slaves to many lusts and pleasures, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a a new life. He gave us his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us. And see, your sin isn't your life. It's not your identity. That's one of the, the lies that's been exchanged for the truth. That's not who you are, and that's not your unalterable identity. You have a new identity in Christ and a new life and a new nature. Your sin does not define you. It's Christ who defines you. And if you're in Christ by faith in him, praise the Lord that he has not destined us for wrath, as Corey read earlier. He delivers us from the wrath to come. How should this affect us as believers? We should praise the Lord that we will never face his eternal wrath. Not because we're better than anyone else. We're not. It's because Jesus, because we trust in him, he bore the wrath that we deserve so that we can stand forgiven at the cross with the Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. I was on a hellbound race But you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath deserved for me. So all I know is grace. Hallelujah. How should we pray as we see God's present wrath revealed in our world? Like the prophet Habakkuk, in wrath, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Or like the Psalms, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. They saw God's wrath on their people, said, Lord, don't discipline me. We can still experience discipline, even in the midst of this. Psalm 90 goes on, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Do we consider this? Here's what we need to consider. Teach us to number our days aright, so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We need to pray like Psalm 90, Lord, give me a heart of wisdom in this world. How should this affect how we evangelize unbelievers? I think 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He says, we implore them on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We, we plead with them. We, we give the, the gospel to them. We tell them to flee to Christ, flee the wrath to come. Because Jesus said, whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. I want to close with Romans 2.4. It warns to not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Here's what I want us to think about. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. One of the questions on your study sheet is, if this is 
God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. How is it important for us to reflect God's kindness? Like Romans 2 says, even to the very people who are living in the sins of Romans 1, if it's God's kindness that leads them to repentance, are we showing God's kindness? Rosaria Butterfield was a liberal lesbian professor teaching queer studies at Vanderbilt University. And in her testimony, it was the kindness of a Christian man and his wife who would get together with them, have them, have her in their home, talk about Christianity, and God used God's kindness on display through that couple to lead her to repentance. On the back of your note sheet, I list her book at the bottom, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And and my prayer, and I've given you several Books written by Christians saved out of that lifestyle. Jackie Hill Perry, Rachel Gilson, I just read that one very recently. Christopher Yuan. My prayer is that some of us, that God would help us to be able to show God's kindness to help lead some of them to repentance. On the back of your note sheet also, there's some commitments by Kevin DeYoung. I think maybe the best book to study these things further is by him. But let me read number five on that list. We will tell all people about the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died in our place and rose again so that we might be set free, saved from the wrath of God, welcomed in the holy city. Number seven, we will extend God's forgiveness to all those who come in brokenhearted repentance, everyone from homosexual sinners to heterosexual sinners, from the proud to the greedy, from the people pleaser to the righteous. And verse nine, and number nine, we will strive to be a community that welcomes all those who hate their sin and struggle against it, even when that struggle involves failures and setbacks. We've got to be that kind of church, too. And number 10, and if you have this sheet in front of you, let's, let's read number 10 out loud together. We will seek to love all in our midst, regardless of their particular vices or virtues, by preaching the Bible, recognizing evidences of God's grace, pointing out behaviors that dishonor the Lord, taking church membership seriously, exercising church discipline, announcing the free offer of the gospel, striving for holiness together, and exulting in Christ above all things. If that's your desire, say amen. Amen. Let me pray. Our great God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you are a kind God as well as a wrathful God. We pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance and even to lead us to repentance in the way that we think about these things where that's needed. We pray that you would make us more like Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.